Welcome to the Publisher Podcast, episode 18. Today, I'm really pleased to provide an interview that I conducted with Jane Friedman, an absolute fountain of knowledge in the publishing industry. She talks about the recent changes, or the recent changes as in the last 10 years, in the publishing industry and all the advancements in the digital age and what that means for authors. I think this is a great interview for you to really understand how the publishing industry is evolving and how that impacts you as an author. Enjoy the show. It is my greatest honor to bring Jane Friedman to the show this year, to the show, to the summit this year. Um, she is someone that we have been following for a long time. And I'm going to read her full bio to you because it gives you a really good um, uh, explanation of why she's here and what she's going to be talking about. So Jane Friedman has 20 years of, experiencing, of experience in the publishing industry with expertise in business strategy for authors and publishers. She's the editor of The Hot Sheet, the essential industry newsletter for authors, and has previously worked for FNW Media and the Virginia Quarterly Review. In 2019, Jane was awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World. Her newsletter was awarded Media Outlet of the Year in 2020. Jane's newest book is The Business of Being a Writer, which we have and love. Uh, published by the University of Chicago Press. Publishers Weekly said it was destined to become a staple reference book for writers and those interested in publishing careers. Also in collaboration with the Authors Guild, she wrote the Authors Guild Guide to Self-Publishing. In addition to being a professor with The Great Courses, Jane maintains an award-winning blog for writers at janefriedman.com. Definitely go sign up for her newsletter. Um, her expertise has been featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, NPR, PBS, CBS, the National Press Club, and many other outlets. Jane has delivered keynotes and workshops on the digital era of authorship at worldwide industry events, including the Writers' Digest Annual Conference, Stockholm Writers' Festival, San Miguel Writers' Conference, The Muse and the Marketplace, 
Frankfurt Book Fair, Book Expo America, Digital Book World. She's also served on grant panels for the National Endowment for the Arts and the Creative Work Fund and has held positions as a professor of writing, media, and publishing at the University of Cincinnati and University of Virginia. In her spare time, Jane writes creative nonfiction, which has been included in the anthologies Every Father's Daughter and Drinking Diaries. If you look hard enough, you can also find her embarrassing college poetry. So thank you so very much for being here with us. My pleasure, Alexa. It's really, um, I, I really appreciate other women who who invest so much time and energy in, in helping other authors trying to find their way. And I really appreciate the fact that you're looking closely at how the digital age is transforming writing careers and how, and that's really the meat of what I want to talk about today, because there are so many more opportunities. And I'd like to start just by talking about when you began and, you know, how much that has changed over time. I entered the publishing industry in the mid to late 90s and you know this was this was before social media this was before ebooks it was really even kind of before Amazon although Amazon existed it was something that people didn't really think that much about in terms of a mover and shaker in book publishing it was kind of this quirky little weird thing where you could order books um, so you know it's it's almost hard to talk about the transformational change that's happened since that time. I mean, one of the first changes was simply the internet and the ability of anyone to go online and access all sorts of information. Uh, and then you layer on top of that social media, which gives authors a way to directly engage their readers and to build an audience, whether or not they have a publisher. And then you layer on top of that e-commerce. <laughs> so all of the shopping that now happens online, especially now during a pandemic, and then eBooks and the Kindle and the growth of Amazon and also self-publishing is uh, growing every step of the way alongside those things. So the, you know, it used to be when I started in the business, there was traditional publishing and then there was kind of a fringe group of people who self-published and you had to be really serious and probably have some means to self-publish effectively. Today, there's self-publishing as a viable option. It's probably 25% of the market. There are also hybrid methods of publishing, uh, which can also be confusing for people because there's not really an agreed upon definition of hybrid. There are hybrid authors. Uh, there are people who publish really only through social means. So they have a career built on influence and being active on social media and deriving income from things that don't look like publishing houses. So yeah, it's a very dynamic environment. It, it keeps changing every day, every week, which is why, I, why I'm still in publishing. It stays very interesting. It, it really is. I mean, I've only been in it um, a fraction of the time that you have. And it's amazing to me how different the world is from 2012 until now. It's it's an it's insane. Well, for someone, how did you start writing? Were you a writer first or I know you worked for a publishing company, but which which one started first? I went to school to college 
to get a degree in creative writing. So my degree is actually a BFA in creative writing. And so my thought was, oh, I'm going to be a full-time writer. And so I took, you know, the fiction classes and the poetry and the creative nonfiction <laughs> and the screenwriting and like the whole works. Um, but I was just as interested in publishing activities. So I was on the school literary journal, I was on the school newspaper and I worked uh, at two internships at publishing houses, one of which I eventually joined when I graduated from college. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily my intention to start working in commercial publishing when I graduated. It just, I, I don't want to say I fell into it because I was certainly involved in writing and publishing from a young age. Uh, but I did think I was going to go on to graduate school and, you know, maybe even get a PhD, but I got sucked in to the publishing industry. Sucked in. <laughs> I love it. I, well, I'm curious, how important do you think it is for indie writers to be um, well-versed, um, educated in the bigger publishing world? I think it helps to be aware of what's happening with the biggest companies because, you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it's not going anywhere. And the decisions that they make indicate usually belatedly which way the market's turning. So while they are very conflict, or not conflict, they're very risk averse, they also, you know, if they don't put out books that sell, they're quickly not going to be relevant. Um, so there are certain ways that if you look at what they're doing, it does have implications and there are lessons there for what independent authors can be doing, should be doing, and also the gaps they can be filling that traditional publishers can't fill. Now we're seeing a lot of consolidation right now among the big five publishers. So that's Macmillan, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, HarperCollins. So, you know, they're all for, ever since I started in publishing, these big companies have been merging. And that gives them actually some of the power and leverage that they need to deal with a big player like Amazon now. Mm -hmm. um, but it also leaves gaps in the market. And you can see how some authors get left behind. Um, and you can see how uh, authors are having to band together in some ways. I, I'm seeing a lot more author um, collaborative efforts in terms of co-ops. Um, whether that's a publishing co-op, a marketing co-op, you see it on uh, the indie author, uh, in the indie author community when people do bundles and box sets, uh, when they get together through markets like Story Origin and do newsletter swaps. So I, you know, so to try and let's see, how do I tie this together? Um, what the big publishers do has an effect on what indie authors do, whether it's in reaction to or in opposition to um, or in spite of. Like we're all in the same ecosystem. And I think writers, regardless of how they publish, tend to have the same interests um, and they tend to benefit. If a traditional publishing author benefits, I tend to think that an indie author benefits. So there are just standards among all sorts of companies and retailers. Like if, so, you know, when pressure is applied by traditional publishing to Amazon and Amazon, let's say capitulates, not saying that that's gonna happen or it does happen, but you know, usually that mean, that's favorable for indie authors. So I think 
too often indie authors and traditionally published authors see themselves at loggerheads mm-hmm. or they, you know, or they, it can get very tribal. Um, there can be a lot of, uh, how to put it, um, self-publishing is the right way to publish or traditional publishing is the right way. And I don't think that's very productive. Right. Um, I do think there's a far more in common among all authors than differences. That's probably not uh, yeah. where you expected me to go, but. That's... No, I think that's a great answer. And, uh, you know, it's, it's our philosophy too here at the summit because we feel like everybody should have the right to pursue the dream that they want to in their publishing route. And if that's traditional, they should go traditional, but we, you know, it's, but there is a lot of benefit for so many people to go the indie route just because of all the things that you just mentioned, particularly the, the lack of space for some of the voices out there. Um, we, you know, especially if you're getting into topics that aren't as sexy to sell forever for, for everyone like grief and loss and inspirational things that aren't by, so no, I'm 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 glad that that's the that that's the answer that you gave. I'd like to ask a little bit more about um, co-ops. We we have a lot of really new authors coming in trying to decide if this is even the way they should go. Can you talk just a little bit more about what you meant by that? Sure. So to give one of the star examples, there is a collective called Tall Poppy Writers that works in the women's fiction space. It was founded by a women's fiction author. Anne Garvin. This has been maybe five years ago that it was founded. And it's it's a core group of maybe 50, 60 authors, authors who aren't, let's say, as um, prolific as most indie authors. That There are some indie authors among their ranks, but they're primarily traditionally published authors, which means maybe a book a year, a book every two to three years. But to stay you know, in front of people, in front of your readership, today it's become really important to produce and to have more work and something new to market. And so Tall Poppy was put together in part because it's so much easier to market when you're not doing it alone and when you have other people to collaborate collaborate with and other people's books to talk about. So they not only talk about their own books, these 50 or 60 authors, they're also inviting guests in and, and they run a book club and and they all promise that when you know, when your book comes out, we're all going to talk about it. And so that amplifies everyone's voice and efforts. So there, you know, there is a a modest membership fee, and then there's a promise that you have to make to the other people in the collective that you're going to step up um, and support those other authors. It's all women's fiction. And I think that's pretty important Mm -hmm. for most collectives I see that the authors have something strong in common as far as their target readership. Because otherwise it, you know, what difference is it going to make if this other author talks about your work to an audience who has zero interest in reading it? Um, so I do see, you know, I, I saw a memoir collective um, startup maybe three years ago, and I'm blanking on the name, but I'm seeing these small efforts emerge, and I think they're fairly important. Um, you see it on a, like, there's always been professional authors organizations that serve a little bit of this role, uh, whether it's like the Romance Writers of America or Mystery Writers of America. Um, I think actually those organizations could be doing more work to help their authors collaborate together um, and formalize some efforts rather than just assuming members will figure it out on their own. Yeah. 
I think it's a, it is a great idea. And I love that you mentioned that about target audience and making sure I think we see that I would say we see that in a lot of um, groups where authors are all coming together, but it's a mixed bag. So how can you build up that collective um, support if you don't have the same people that you're reaching out to? So that's a, it's a really great point. Um, I, I, for for those who are just starting out and are kind of looking forward to what success, what the path of success could look like for them. Do you think it's more important to start building an audience or creating lots of content for people to read or both? <laughs> I would say a lot here depends on the genre or category you're working in. So if you're a novelist or a fiction writer of any kind or a poet, then I think it's most important to put out work, to write new work, to publish new work, because it's really hard to build an audience for something that doesn't yet exist. Uh, Like people need to read and enjoy your stories. That's what's gonna create demand. That's what's gonna create word of mouth. That's not to say you shouldn't be on social media as a fiction writer, not at all, because there are relationships and networks that you'll want to be part of. Like if you want to be part of a collective, you know, you don't want to think about that the day your book comes out. You want to be thinking, you want to be active in the writing community for years prior, hopefully, uh, to your book coming out. Um, Because as I said, it's hard to market a book by yourself. So it's very different, though, if you're on the nonfiction side. So, and and in here, I have to hedge a little and say, this could apply to memoir, it's going to depend on the nature of the memoir. Um, But let's say you want to write a book on parenting, or you want to do a narrative nonfiction book um, that's about horses, or, you know, like Seabiscuit. You know, that's going to require you to build a name and a reputation for yourself where you've got trust with an audience where people know you for this topic, you know, you're building credibility and visibility. If you want a traditional publishing deal, it becomes even more important because no one will pay attention unless you have a platform, uh, which platform is just visibility to the target audience for your work. So how do you do that? It's, you know, well, how does anyone advance in a profession you know you it's a lot of it starts with relationships and being associated with the right people or the right brands or the right organizations um, showing your work putting your work out there doing a podcast or a blog being active on social being helpful being of service uh, there are lots of ways to do it um, so I don't I, I hesitate to say oh you should definitely be on social it's <laughs> going to depend on your community um, yeah. but it certainly helps to use social I asked that question because I think it's one one that we hear so often, like, should I be spending all my time writing or when should I start marketing and all of that? And I mean, it, yeah. yeah. I think the best, the best way I can summarize it is when your book launches, what assets are you going to have in place? That usually the most important assets are the people you know. Mm-hmm. Like the, the people you email or the people you can call or the people you can text that will actually listen to what you have to say. <laughs> so if you reach your launch day and you haven't given any thought to that, it's going to be a very lonely and frustrating experience. And that's a sad, that's a sad time. <laughs> well, we talked, we talked about um, in the beginning of the conversation about the changes that have been making. I'd like to ask you what 
your favorite change is the the mm -hmm. thing that you think is the coolest thing that authors have available to them now that we didn't before? Well, I think it's instant publishing in all of its forms. I mean, that instant publishing could refer to the fact you can get an ebook up and published basically within a few clicks of a button, assuming the book's ready to go, uh, or that you can broadcast on Twitter exactly what you think about something and it has the potential to reach thousands and thousands of people, or that you have a, a doorway to some of the most incredible people in the world by simply typing their handle on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever you're active and they're gonna see it. I mean, when I started in the business, it was really hard for to get anyone of any reputation to see you, to recognize you, to know what you had to say. And now it's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of noise and it's easy for people to ignore you or mute you or unfollow you. But um, still, if you have like something interesting to say, if you're really helpful, um, if your work is quality, you have a much better chance of it getting noticed in 2020 than you ever did in 1998 when I had my first formal job. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. But on that note, um, the next, the follow-up question to that is because there's so many people now publishing every month and because there's so many people making noise, how does a new author stand out? <laughs> yes. So this is, uh, this is the burden. Uh, it, I don't want to make light of how competitive it is and how, how many people are out there trying to do exactly the same thing, which is build an audience, be noticed, get seen, or sell a book. Um, I think that it helps if you're really focused and disciplined about who you're trying to reach. So I see a lot of writers, especially this happens in nonfiction, I don't know why, um, why it's more prevalent with nonfiction writers, but they think their book is for everyone and it's gonna change the entire world. And that's just not, from a, just from a professional marketing perspective, you can't market to the whole world. You just can't, you have to start with a more specific idea of who's going to be most excited, most enthusiastic, most likely to spread the word. Um, so getting really, really honest with yourself about who your book is meant for, who you're speaking to, and where you need to be active, where people will give you the time of day. And it ripples out from there. Almost all marketing starts local. Mm -hmm. And by local, I don't mean like literally in your town, but like, <laughs> although it can mean that, I, I mean like the people who are in your inner circle and then your acquaintances, and it always bubbles out from there. It's really rare to go from just yourself and then spring out over to Oprah without any steps in between, you know, but some people have that dream and they're thinking, oh, well, that lightning could strike. I'll be the exception that will happen to me, you know, but it, unfortunately it doesn't. So I think that's the secret is thinking about the small steps you can take, how you're going to show up consistently every day rather than thinking it's going to be some Hail Mary where all of a sudden overnight you're a best-selling author. It's, it just doesn't happen that way. It happens almost always over years unless something really tremendous happens to you. Like you land a plane in the Hudson, you know? Right. 
It's it's funny though because I think that that's something that so many authors do struggle with is this comparison game. I mean, you know, how do I how do I get to be Jane Friedman by next week? Well, Jane Friedman got there by years and years and years of hard work and all of those things, but it's it is very difficult to to take those little tiny steps that that seem big enough. Do you, what do you think are some of, of the most important little steps in getting there? It helps so much if you're working in one area consistently for a while. So some authors, especially early career, they may not know exactly what they want to write and that's okay. Like you don't have to figure it out. Like I wrote a ton of poetry and short stories before I realized I actually don't want to write any of this. <laughs> Um, I just think I want to write it because that's what's cool or that's what people respect or that will give me prestige. So I think there's a lot of this early, like you, we have all these societal expectations or parental expectations or who knows where the expectations are coming from. You can just get it from reading the internet, but you have all these things you think you want and then you realize what it is you actually want to do. So if you, whatever it is that you do actually want to do, if you can just focus on that for a few years, <laughs> pursuing that, becoming better at that, um, because writing, you know, we haven't really talked about the craft. I'm more of the business type, but to get good at anything, you have to do it for a while and writing is no exception. So I think sometimes writers expect way too much out of the gate from their efforts when they haven't even given themselves a chance to master their craft. So it takes a lot of patience, you know, to go down that road and you have to give yourself the time like you to, to go through the frustration and to handle the fact that what you envision and what you're able to accomplish aren't going to match up for a while. Um, now I've forgotten where this question started, but um... the, the small steps, the most <laughs> yeah. important small steps to take, but I yes. craft is huge on that. Yeah. So put it, putting in the work mm -hmm. every day. And a lot of that's practicing the craft from a business perspective. I think it's about showing up mm -hmm. and by showing up, I mean, you're not just going to, you're not going to go off into your garret and write exclusively. You're also going to show up in the community and engage with other people. In the, in the creative writing MFA university community, they like to call this literary citizenship hmm. because it sounds less threatening than networking, which is kind of also what it's about, which is just, just developing relationships. It's getting to know other writers and finding that community of people that you're going to uh, you're going to collaborate with and that you're going to be supported by. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's the craft part is something that we often see. Uh, um, I, well, I see around people is that they get so excited that they've finished this book and they're ready just like tomorrow, let's publish this tomorrow um, without really having workshopped it, without having gotten a lot of feedback and all of that stuff for the person who is just so excited that they've finished their book and is like, I want to publish this tomorrow. What would you say to them? <laughs> Well, you have two choices. Uh, I think it's a valid feeling. Like when I finish something, I want to like, just get it out there too. Mm -hmm. um, so one is to, you know, just let the work cool off 
and then revisit it, especially if you want to traditionally publish, Mm -hmm. you're probably going to have to go through multiple revisions on that. You're going to have to, if it's your first manuscript, it's probably not the one you're going to publish either. Unfortunately, it's usually your third, fourth or fifth manuscript. So yeah, you just have to back off and realize that the first work you've produced, if, if it is your first work, is probably not going to be your best effort, especially at first draft stage. That said, there is a valid other path to take, which has nothing to do with traditional publishing. You could go and serialize that work chapter by chapter, or even write it in progress over at a site like Wattpad. Um, which is a community site where writers serialize stories. It's very popular with young people. Um, It's basically like writing live, writing for a live audience, people waiting for your next installment. Um, You could put the book out as an ebook just because you want to have it out there. And it doesn't really matter, you know, if it has uh, acceptance from a commercial publisher. You could send it out chapter by chapter in an email newsletter. You could... put it on Instagram. Like, I don't know, like there's so many ways that you can take a work now and build an audience with it if that appeals to you. But it, it just depends on what you want to get out of the experience. Yeah. Um, well, you've, as you mentioned, you are in the business of writing. And uh, the question I hear from people a lot is, is it possible to be a full-time author? Can I make a living as a full-time author? And I love your book because it goes into all kinds of different ways that people can make a living as a writer and earn money through writing. But is it, is it possible in 2020 for a brand new writer to come on the scene and just expect that they're going to make enough income through selling books on Amazon? (laughs) Uh, It's probably not going to happen initially. So you know, for example, if you're going to be a traditionally published author who's making money primarily from advances, royalties, and right sales, you know, unless you get a six-figure advance right out of the gate, you're not going to be able to quit your day job. And even if you did get the six-figure advance, I wouldn't quit the day job because once you break that up over two or three years of payments and take out the taxes and your agent gets their cut, uh, and who knows what's going to happen with the second book. So it's not terribly reliable until you have some security and confidence oh this publisher is going to stick with me for book two and three and four and like yes now I'm I'm I can see on the horizon that I might be able to put out books consistently year after year after year um so for I'll give an example um the editor of Writer's Digest magazine wanted to start a fiction writing career. And she did it while she still had that full-time job uh, writing uh, thrillers. I, I, I would say probably domestic suspense is what her novels are. And I think it was her third manuscript that finally got representation from an agent while she was still on the job. And that book sold, but it took her another, I don't know, two or three years before she quit that job. And that it was only when she saw, okay, I'm now starting on book three. I've now got a contract for book four. I can see what the money is going to be for each of these books. I see that the sales trajectory is positive. Like I'm selling more of each title and not less of each title. Um, And there's some trust that's developing. So these things take time. 
Um, you know, it probably took her 10 years to for that full transition to happen from the time she wrote her first manuscript to the time she left her job and said, hey, I can do this um, without feeling concerned. I won't have a paycheck or I won't have enough in royalty checks coming in. Um, for self-publishing authors, what I often see is that you need to have probably a minimum of three books, if not five or six books, usually in a series, before you can say, all right, I, I might have enough here to make a living. Uh, there's a really well-known group called 20 Books to 50K in the uh -huh. indie author community. Uh -huh. So it's this idea that if you write 20 books, that amounts to a living, uh, $50,000 a year. Now, I, I might quibble with that. Um, <laughs> but generally, the spirit of that, I can, I can agree with. Because once you produce a certain volume of work, it does tend to give your, your career momentum. It's more tools for discovery, for marketing your work. It makes it easier to advertise and make money off your books and sell, when you sell them through Amazon in particular. So I think it kind of goes back to the patience issue. Yeah. Are you, if you're someone who wants to be a career author, are you prepared to put out books on a schedule for years? And if the answer is yes, then yes, you can earn a full-time living at it. And if not, there's all kinds of other ways that you <laughs> teach people about. <laughs> but, um, what are what are, what do you think are some of the best ways for somebody who who is entry level to kind of um, make some money as a writer? Well, one of the popular ways currently is through patronage donations. Um, so getting that those first circle of supporters to pledge pledge you a certain amount of money or donate money for some of your early work. Um, if you're on the nonfiction side, blogging or podcasting can help a little. I mean, it still, again, you need a volume of work behind you usually till you see money or like financial opportunities come your way in the form of advertising or sponsorships. Um, there's also, you know, teaching and freelancing and all sorts of services that tie into writing and publishing. Some people have skills from a career that are really useful in publishing that they can sell to other writers, whether that's, you know, uh, marketing services, um, virtual assistants, like uh, VAs, um, copywriting, website design. There's all sorts of ways that I see authors have a side business that helps support the writing that may not be paying the bills yet. And, and it's a little bit tough right now with um, so many conferences down there. I guess speaking is a little bit more challenging than, <laughs> than in the past. It is. It is. And I think speaking, expecting income from speaking is, I mean, you only can command the really good speaking fees if you have a big name. Like the people yeah. on the bestseller lists are able to earn a lot of money from speaking. Um, so an early career writer, that's going to be less the case unless you have a really lucrative niche that you're in. How long, I'm just curious, how long did it take you before you started seeing, because now you do a lot of speaking events and um, how long did it take before the work that you put in started resulting in people contacting you for doing that type of engagement? I had a bit of a lift in that I worked for Writer's Digest for mm -hmm. many years, and they actively promoted Writer's Digest staff as conference speakers. Mm 
Nice. And so when a request would come in from a conference, hey, would you send an editor to speak on queries or whatever? Um, you know, the, the top level editor would say, oh, I think so-and-so is the best match for this opportunity. Um, and so that's how my first speaking engagement started. And Writer's Digest promoted itself as you get our speakers for free if you cover our costs, mm -hmm. because that we saw it as a marketing opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and so I actually think it was a brilliant way to market Writer's Digest. I think it was very effective. But the upshot is that that's how my speaking career started. It didn't really require much yeah. work from me because I had the brand. Uh, but then I had to learn what I was worth when I left Writer's Digest. Mm -hmm. So by that time, I had an active blog and online presence, and I still got speaking requests because my name was out there still without Writer's Digest. But since I had never charged before, I didn't know. Yeah. I did it. Well, what should yeah. my speaking fee be? I don't really know. Um, so that's that's been a work in progress. Yeah, for for everyone, I think that's a thing that women in general <laughs> also struggle with. Is like, how can I even determine a price for what I can? Yes. <laughs> yeah. But um, well, it's interesting talking more on the indie side here. You, you spoke about the marketing opportunity and how the magazine uh, or the Writers Digest realized, you know, the 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 marketing versus getting sending their people out. So. I, I like this idea of um, asking a question about marketing and, and the value of paying for marketing for indie authors and kind of what you think on that. Because I hear a lot of people talk about, you don't have to spend any money to market yourself. And I'm curious what you think about that. As a self-published author, you don't have to spend money to market? Yes. <laughs> uh, well, <clears throat> no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You heard it from Jane. <laughs> I, actually, there's, I mean, there's some like foundational costs mm -hmm. that go into running any business, right? Um, and I think for book authors in particular, some of those really important investments you're going to make are in brand design, cover design, things that tie together who you are as an author, the books that you write and how that all comes together on the covers, on the website, on social. So you wanna see like a brand identity forming as you become more professional. I don't think you have to have it out of the gate, um, but you like incrementally, you wanna take steps in that direction. And usually it requires hiring professional designers. So I think that's often one of the first investments I see that indicate to me, oh, this person's pretty serious um, because they're investing in professional design, especially for book covers, because so much of your marketing often spins out of the book cover. Um, there's also, you could even call editing to some extent, a marketing expense, and not just for the manuscript itself, but you've got the marketing copy that's going to go on Amazon and other co copy that you might be using. Some authors are really skilled at doing this themselves and they can do it. Sometimes you have to hire out and you need assistance. Um, and then sometimes I know authors will hire people to help with social media. I don't think that's required. Really, the I think once an author is established, I see a lot of the key marketing expense, expenses going into advertising. Yeah. So advertising on Amazon, yeah. Facebook, and BookBub, those are the big three as of today. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really hard to hire that out because the return on investment for those ads it just gets decimated once you're hiring someone yeah. to run the ads for you. Um, so it does put this burden on authors to learn what is a pretty specialized skill, uh, which is click-based advertising. I don't know how much uh, people listening are gonna be aware of how these systems work, but they're very technical. They involve bidding systems and it involves testing. So I think once authors learn those systems and they understand what it means to test effectively, they can run those campaigns themselves and they don't have to pay an outsider, but then you still have to pay for the ads. So you're paying for those clicks. Um, and I, I, don't think, I don't know if you want to get into the details of all that, but I know at least within the last few years, most professional indie authors tell me they can't maintain their level of sales without advertising. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard too. That at some point in time you have to pay to play <laughs> if right. you're really gonna see the bigger numbers. Right. Um, and I, I know that's really hard to tell somebody who is, you know, scrapping to try and pay for a cover design and for this and for that, which I think is why it's so important that you do have real ex realistic expectations about what you're actually going to be making originally and then have have, a, have your other job or have your other side jobs. I, I, I don't know an author, I mean, other than like a big name authors, which I don't personally know very many of them myself, but um, I don't know anybody who, who doesn't have some sort of other side gig going to support their, their writing career. Either they're doing editing or doing copywriting, any of the number of things you mentioned in, in your business of being a writer. So I do want to, I, I do, I do just really want to make another plug for this book because I think it's really important for authors to understand that it's not, you're probably not going to be an over, there's no such, such thing as an overnight success. It took 20 years to get to that overnight success. So, but there are other ways to, um, to be there and it's very nicely outlined for you <laughs> right here in this book. Um, you have given a number of wonderful tips. You do lots of courses. You have your hot sheet, which is awesome. It's so we learn so much from that. Um, every time it comes to us, just got a new one yesterday that I'm haven't dug into yet, but my assistant was like, you need to read it. She's got some great <laughs> stuff in there this time. Um, so, but we always do because there is a lot of stuff in there. You teach courses, you run all kinds of, of, um, uh, content on your on your blog as well. You may have already told all of your tips, but do you have any final like for the newbie coming in there? What are your best, you know, top three tips or so for them? I think new authors especially underestimate the psychological battle that's at work here in the writing career, really in any artistic or creative career, there's a tremendous psychological battle that comes into play. Am I good enough? Mm -hmm. Am I wasting my time? Um, you get into the comparison game with, that you mentioned earlier, which can be very destructive, um, but is also unavoidable. Like I can't tell people, stop comparing yourself to others. I mean, it's just human nature. Um, so there are so many ways that writers undercut themselves when they get into these anxiety loops. Um, and there's also these kind of layered onto that are the kind of the myths of the writing and publishing life, the kind of misguided expectations people can have, the how quickly they think success might come. Um, 
often because they think someone else succeeded really quickly when they actually didn't. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, we can be our own worst enemy. Yeah. So I would suggest that every writer, you know, I think you'll know when you come up against some of these psychological hurdles, they feel terrible when you come up against them. It, you feel like you want to quit <laughs> and you tend to have a feeling of worthlessness. Uh, take a look at a book like The War of Art by That's Stephen good. Pressfield. Um, some people like Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge fan of that one, but I know it's helpful to many people. Take a look at that if that's your speed. Um, there's also something I recommend for very young writers, like teenagers, YA uh, age group, would be something like uh, Letters to a Young Writer by Rilke, which is a classic. But I think it it basically advises what I think is one of the great tips in publishing. Just live with the questions, <laughs> acknowledge that you're not gonna have answers to these questions. There's gonna be a lot of gray area that you just have to put up with. Um, and there's a lot of writers who want definitive answers or they want a straight path and it just doesn't work that way. So you have to kind of come to the table accepting a lot of uncertainty and self-doubt. And I think that just Expect that it will be there. Don't be surprised when it shows up <laughs> and then move through it. I love that. I'm just taking that note down. <laughs> Live through it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so very much. Um, Janefriedman.com, I suppose, is the best place you want us to send people to. Check yes. out the business of being a writer. Check out the hot sheet. Check out all the things. And um, are, are, what, what's next for you? What's your next big thing? Oh, well, the pandemic has... Uh, <laughs> kind of created a lot of uncertainty, yes. um, <laughs> speaking of gray areas. Yes. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what's gonna be happening in 2021, but I am planning to double down on my paid newsletter, The Hot Sheet. Mm -hmm. So that's big. This is a newsletter that reports on industry news for an audience of authors. And that's what I'm most interested in. Yeah. So I'm hoping to draw back on some other services that I offer. Um, I have a pretty diverse or multifaceted business model as you, yeah. you know, alluded to. And so I'm trying to like prune some things so that I can focus more time on my own writing. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm trying to do the same thing. So I'll have to keep up with how that goes for you. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate your time. This has been wonderful. And um, I wish you well in the next year. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for joining us on the Publisher Podcast. We hope to see you back for the next episode. Great, huge thanks goes to Jasmine Commerce for the use of her song. You can find Jasmine on SoundCloud. Go check out all of her music. We'll see you next time.